All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Grab a Bible. Let's go to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. If you're walking out right now, you're going to miss the best part. I know I'm not nearly as adorable. Um, We want to welcome you if you are new to our community. We are in the middle of a series of conversations that we've entitled The Way. The, the way the earliest Christians referred to themselves were as followers of the way. It was a way not only of believing, it was a way of living. And so we want to look at that Ephesians chapter 2, that this way is involved not only as individuals, this way is involved uh, with uh, how we are together as a community. Bless you guys. Parents. God bless you. I just... (laughs) So many things that I'm editing out. (sighs) Ephesians chapter 2. Now, if you are new to the Bible, we're going to read about Jews and Gentiles. The Jewish side of that equation, pretty self-evident. These are children of Abraham, uh, ethnic Israel. Uh, the Gentile side, that, that could be a new word for you. A Gentile just is somebody who's not Jewish. So back in the day, there were just two kinds of people. Those who were Jewish and everyone else who wasn't. And so uh, one of the earliest uh, issues in the church... When Jesus ascended and sent his uh, apostles, one of the earliest issues in the church were how were these two groups to relate to each other? Because traditionally there was just such animosity between Jews and Gentiles. On the Jewish side, there were some rabbis that taught that Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell, and that was the only reason God had created them. That you were, you, they, they literally said, some of them, not, again, not all of them, but some would say it was unlawful if you were Jewish to help a Gentile woman give birth because that was just adding another Gentile to the world. Uh, some would say uh, that if, if you were Jewish and you married outside of Judaism, your family would throw a funeral for you because you were dead to them. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of animosity from that side. But on the other side, on the Gentile side of that equation, there were many instances where uh, Gentiles would seek the entire extermination of the Jewish race. There were times when Jews were forbade from worshiping their God, from keeping their dietary law, from celebrating their feasts. I mean, so, so there was a whole bunch of animosity between Jews and Gentiles. And, and the problem was this. You've got a Jewish Messiah who, and I, I don't know if that's news to anybody, but Jesus wasn't a Christian. He was Jewish, right? That's kind of funny. Christ wasn't his last name, right? We all get that. All right, 11. You know, I don't know if all that cuteness kind of lulled you into sleepiness, but that, that, that was funny. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, and... Um, and, and, and you had uh, Jesus, who was a Jewish Messiah, fulfilling the Jewish scriptures, a gathering around himself, a bunch of Jewish followers. And, and then persecution breaks out and this movement gets scattered way beyond Israel. And now there are all of these Gentiles flooding into the church. And it was no wonder that the first council that we know of that the church held together dealt with this issue, right? I mean, how... Because there were some that were arguing, listen, the only way to get through Jesus is through the door of Judaism. And so how do Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, how are they supposed to relate? Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew of Jews, was the ambassador to the Gentiles. And he spent a lot of time in his letters talking about how Jews and Gentiles were now being united together in Christ. So we pick up his argument in Ephesians chapter 2, 
verse 14. He says this, For Jesus Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. So the Jews and the Gentiles are now one, and Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, the dividing wall of hostility, there's some disagreement over what this could be. This could be something the law itself. Some people think it could be the fact that in the Jewish temple in the first century, there were courts in the temple that only Jews could go in. There was So you had the most holy place kind of in the middle, and then you had the holy place, and then you had the court of Israel, and then you had the court of women. And if you were Jewish, you could, you could go in however far you were allowed to go. But on the edge of the whole temple complex was the court of Gentiles. If you were a Gentile who wanted to worship the God of Israel, you could go to the court of Gentiles, but you couldn't go any further into the complex than just that. In fact, there were pillars that were put there with signs on them that warned if you, if you a Gentile, stepped into the Jewish part of the temple complex, you could be put to death. So Paul actually gets in trouble. He gets accused of, of this uh, in the book of Acts. So there was a sense in which some think that Paul's referring to that physical wall. So others think it was the, the law distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. Either way, the argument is that Jesus has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one, and what's your Bible say? That was... (laughs) This is what I heard. (laughs) Evidently the Trinity and I will engage in a conversation up here. Um... For He Himself is our peace. His purpose was to create Himself one new humanity. Now, the word new, there are two different words for new. You'll be fascinated to know. One word for new means new in terms of time, like an upgraded uh, version on your phone. Right? There have been several instances, but this is the newest instance. All right? That is not the word that's used. The word that's used is new in terms of kind. This is a new that's never been seen before. So what Paul suggests, I mean, you've got to think about who he's talking to. He's thinking, he's talking to a little, little bitty house churches, maybe 20, 30 people, scattered around Asia Minor, around Ephesus. Jews and Gentiles are sitting next to each other. And his argument is not only are you supposed to be nice because you've been reconciled to God, but you've been reconciled to each other because God wants to create an entirely new expression of humanity. That's what his argument is. And he continues... He says, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two groups, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now, I can tell you're not dazzled, but we should be dazzled with how revolutionary this stuff was. Nobody was saying these kinds of things in the first century. That literally, here's his argument. 
that Jews and Gentiles, two groups that outside the doors of the little house church would typically be full of animosity to each other, God, what Jesus has done, has not only been to reconcile them each to God, and hallelujah for that, but reconcile them to each other, and the purpose of that was to create a new humanity. A brand new, never before seen expression of what it means to be human. That two groups who are antagonistic towards each other, that barrier that separated them, that barrier that divided them, that's been destroyed by Jesus. And so whatever label they carried into the church is now subsumed under the label of in Christ. That's it. See, it's, for the, it's, it's because Paul made these kinds of arguments that you and I are here 2,000 years later. Not many of us are ethnically Jewish. And it very easily could have stayed a primarily Jewish faith. But instead what happened is you get guys like Paul saying, no, 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 no. It's not just that Jews and Gentiles now sit together. It's that they've been made one. And that this is as much as an expression of the work of Jesus as is the fact that you've been forgiven for your sins. So Paul says, a new humanity has been created. And in the ancient world, I know this will shock you, but in the ancient world they had all kinds of ways they divided each other. I mean, I know we don't do this anymore, but back then, you divided into lots of different categories, right? So you had Rome ruled the world, and so you had Roman citizen or non-Roman citizen. Roman citizenship held some privileges. If you were not a Roman citizen, odds are you were being ruled by a Roman citizen. Within those designations, you had the elite rich classes, and then you had the common classes. Some estimate one, anywhere from 1% to 4% of the population was in the ruling elite. The rest were in the common classes. Within those distinctions, you had slaves. You had hundreds and thousands of slaves who would be marked, their ear would be pierced or marked with a mark on their forehead or their arm, stamping them as property. And then you had freemen. Within those distinctions, you had male and female. Women in the first century were considered totally secondary. They were not given many rights in Roman law. They, they were not considered uh, to be much of anything except vehicles through whom uh, uh, the head of a household could propagate his line. You did not owe your wife in the first century, you did not owe her a marriage retreat or date nights. You owed her a roof over her head and the opportunity to bear children, and that was it. And it was very common that Roman men had mistresses everywhere else. The men held the power of life and death over the household. Okay? So you have a world full of distinctions and categories. And you have Paul arguing, no, 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 no. Let's take Jew and Gentile, emblematic, at least in the minds of his audience, of all barriers everywhere, saying that those barriers have been erased, that division no longer exists in the reality of this Jesus. And notice what he does next. Go to chapter 6. So Paul writes these letters to flesh and blood churches, and, and he'll, talk to, he'll talk to different categories of people often towards the end of the letter. So notice chapter 6, verse 1. Who does he write to here? Children, obey your parents. Notice verse 4. Who does he talk to here? Fathers. Notice, so it means they're children and fathers in his audience, right? Or he wouldn't address them. Notice verse 5. Who is it? Slaves. So there were slaves in these house churches. And then notice verse 9. And masters. Now, you don't seem particularly dazzled, but this, 
This, I mean, there was no other place in human history where slaves and masters voluntarily associated with each other. You've got to understand, for, I mean, we just read that like, oh, it's not a big deal that slaves and masters would be in the same room. No, no, no. It's huge. It's revolutionary for its time. Nobody else in human history was saying these kinds of things about the way human beings should relate to each other. That of all the ways you could categorize, there's only one that matters. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's it. Whether you were slave or whether you're free, right? That doesn't matter anymore because now we've got slaves and free men sitting in a room with Jesus, worshiping Jesus. I mean, it's just absolutely mind-blowing. Go if you would to the book of Galatians. Paul makes this argument all over the place. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 26. Galatians 3. Notice what he says here, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither, and again, we know this passage and it's lost its punch. But imagine you're in a little bitty house church and these are the ways everyone divides themselves. And you have this guy saying, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all what? One in Christ Jesus. I mean, do you understand? This is the reason women and slaves flocked into the movement of Jesus. Nowhere else, in any place, anywhere was something like this being said. No philosopher, no teacher, no rabbi, nobody was saying these kinds of things in the first century. Many men struggled to find their place in the movement of Jesus because their understanding of what it meant to be head of the household was totally revolutionized. But for women and slaves, for children, to be welcomed and called family, there was no place else. When you study the rise of Christianity, how, how this little bitty movement kind of took over the world, when you look at that, this is one of the reasons why Rome will become Christian. Because at some point, it wasn't just the announcement, hey, God will forgive your sins. There were lots of ways of being forgiven. But it was the, not only that God will forgive your sins, and here's proof. Here's a tribe of people who have nothing else in common but Jesus sitting at peace. See, the community of Jesus was to be the evidence for its, the resurrection of its founder. Now, I don't know about you. You still don't seem dazzled. The church loves reintroducing the barriers that Jesus destroys. Would you agree with that? I mean, think of, okay, think of all the ways we could divide ourselves up right now. So you got ethnic, right? So we could divide ourselves white, super white, you know, <laughs> black, Latino, Asian. We could divide ourselves up politically, right? Republican, Democrat, don't care, independent. Right? I mean, we could divide ourselves up according to our preferences, right? I love the drums. I wish we fired up the organ more. You could divide yourself up uh, according to education, right? PhD and GED sitting in this room. We could, we could divide ourselves up by hair, whether you have it or you're fortunate enough to have lost it. Right? We could divide ourselves up denominationally. 
Right? So we've got some Baptists and some Methodists and some Brethren and some EV Free and some... I, I mean, you just go a thousand different ways the church can divide itself up. The new humanity isn't when people hang out with people just like them. See, Jesus will say, listen, if you love people who love you, what good is that? Even tax collectors do that. The new humanity is found when people who have nothing else in common but Jesus get together and celebrate Him. That's the new humanity. That's revolutionary. That was what the good news represented. It wasn't just, hey, we're reconciled to God. Hallelujah! And if that was all it was, that'd be more than we could ever deserve. But it was also the fact that every other dividing wall, every other barrier, every other way of classifying human beings, that was now subsumed under one. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's it. That's it. Do do you know what kind of churches we would have if literally any label that applied to you out there just didn't apply in here? I mean, it doesn't matter. Convict. Okay, that, that label isn't as important. Right? Poor. That label isn't important. Right? I mean, what, what kind of community would that be? See, the thing that was so revolutionary about the early communities of Jesus is they actually put this on display. The new humanity isn't a group of people who hang out with people just like them. The new humanity is a group of people willing to work with people who aren't like them for the sake of this Jesus. That's the new humanity. And, of course, it started with Jesus. Go, if you would, to the book of Luke, chapter 6. Paul didn't cook this idea up. Go to Luke 6. Verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Now, in the first century... One of the most pressing questions that the Jews discussed was, what do we do with Rome? We're God's chosen people living in God's chosen land, and we're oppressed by these Roman pagans. Like, what do we do? And there there were lots of different answers to that. Some people thought, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And so they collaborated with the Romans. Sadducees and tax collectors were Jews that collaborated with the Romans. There there was a party called the Pharisees we know a lot about. They were folks that advocated faithfulness to Torah, God's law. And said, listen, if if disobeying God's law got us into exile, then obeying God's law is going to keep us from being in exile. So some of them taught that if you kept perfectly two Sabbaths in a row, Messiah would come. Then you had other people that said, heck with all of this, we're going to go out into the desert. Essenes, they formed monk-like communities out in the desert. Then you had folks called zealots. Zealots wanted to take Rome on by force of arms. They were called dagger men who would carry daggers around just waiting for the call to revolution. And, and, and if you look at the ministry of Jesus, Jesus interacts with all of these different kinds of people. It's just interesting what he does with each. But notice who he pulls together. When morning came, he called his disciples, designated 12. Verse 14, Simon, who he, who he named Peter... His brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, and then who's the next guy? What? 
Yeah, I didn't mean him. Who's the next guy after Bartholomew? That's the one I was looking for. Skipped one, sorry. Appreciate you interacting though. Yes, Matthew. Now, Matthew, what was Matthew's other name? I know, Levi. And then what was his occupation? Tax collector. Now, how popular are tax collectors today? Not really. They were even less popular back then. Many of you know this, of course. But what Herod did, Herod was a puppet king uh, backed by the Roman government. Herod would um, bribe Jewish men and women to go collect his taxes. And, And how he would do it is he would say, you get a cut of whatever you collect. And so if you're a fisherman... You'd be fishing all night. You'd come in in the morning with your catch of fish and there would be a tax collector taking part of the fish. How popular were these folks? Not at all. I mean, the only people most Jews hated more than the Romans were the Jews who'd sold the rest of them out and were helping them. Right? I mean, so, so in the New Testament, you'll read about sinners and tax collectors. Two totally different categories. You've got sinners... And then you have a whole different category over here just for tax collectors, right? You'll read that phrase. So Jesus pulls together a tax collector. What's fascinating after Matthew is Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the the zealot. So in the movement of Jesus, you have a tax collector who was hated and you have a zealot who's carrying a dagger around. Right? We just read that and we think, oh, that's not a big deal. No, no, no. That'd be like saying, hey, let's get a member of the Taliban and a victim of one of the 9-11 attacks in the same room. Let, let's, get, let's get the president of the NAACP in a room and the president of the Ku Klux Klan in a room. Right? I mean, that's what this was like. There's no place tax collectors and zealots hung out together. There's no place Jews and Gentiles, slave or free, male or female, hung out together. This was the most powerful witness of the early Christian community. That whatever label you carried in from out there no longer applies. The only label that matters in here is whether or not you are in Christ. Period. That's what was so revolutionary. In the early centuries after Jesus, but is it the people actually lived this way. Go if you would to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3. We'll flip back there. Ephesians 3. Now, I grew up in a little bitty church, and we had our church, at least its social life together, was governed by three F's food, fun. What's the last one? Fellowship, yes. Now, if you're new to church, you don't even know what we're talking about. In my church, food, fun, and fellowship spelled potluck. Okay, so it will shock you to know that I was raised on a steady diet of potluck where everyone brings a dish to pass. And, and I moved out to California and nobody did potlucks and I grieved. There was a little part of me that died. Um, somehow I've managed. But... I always thought that the purpose of fellowship was just to have a nice time and meet everyone's social needs. Evidently, Jesus has something far more radical in mind. Notice what Paul says. In chapter 3, he is still marveling at this new humanity. He calls it a mysterion, a mystery that had been hidden in the secret purposes of God that Jews and Gentiles would now be one and form a new humanity. Notice what he says, chapter 3, verse 10. 
God's intent was that now, through the what? The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now do you, I mean, okay, that's a lot of like Christian words, but do you get what he's saying there? The purpose of the fellowship that we share together is not to meet our social needs. It's to put the powers and principalities on notice that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. In other words, the church doesn't exist for itself. It exists for the sake of the world. And that's the reason why the new humanity doesn't mean that people who are just like us hang out with each other. The new hum- that's not the new humanity. Anybody can do that. The new humanity is when people who have nothing else in common do the hard work of reconciling and forgiving and encouraging and being patient with each other. I mean, that's why there are 40-something one-another passages that all assume the continued sinfulness of the community. Right? Why else would you have to be commanded to be patient with each other? Because we're going to wear each other out. Or forgive one another. Well, because we're going to screw it up. So all of this is given to the church, not for food, fun, and fellowship, but as a living and breathing sign, witness, and testimony to the powers that Jesus has actually risen from the dead. You're still not staggered. See, I absolutely believe one of the most tragic things we do in the American church is we assume that the church exists to meet my needs. Marriage exists to meet my needs. Businesses exist to meet my needs. And of course, churches do too. And Jesus loves you even if that's what you think. But what is so obvious from the study of the New Testament is the church is precisely the place where all of the ways you could categorize, all the ways that you could get your social needs met, all of those are laid at its front door so that people who are Jewish and Gentile, slave and free, black or white, male and female, all sit together as one in Jesus. That there is no label out there that's as important in here. Not one. I mean, Jesus said Himself, right? The world will know you're my disciples by your clever bumper stickers. Isn't that what he said? The world will know you're my disciples because you have an awesome political agenda. No, what's he say? The world will know you're my disciples by how you love each other. And see, early on, this was what happened. Fire up the thing here. See, early on, even even the critics of the church couldn't help but marvel at the way the church treated each other. It is incredible. So this, this was a guy, not a fan. It is incredible to see the ardor or passion with which the people of that religion, Christianity, help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are all brethren. They're all family. This guy, we'll call him A. He says... If one or another of them, the Christians, have slaves who are bondmen or slaves that are women or children, through love towards them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them what? Brethren without distinction. In other words, if you own slaves, and that was very common and very acceptable in Roman society, if those slaves became Christians, they weren't known as slaves in the church. They were known as brothers and sisters. 
One historian says the church had qualities unparalleled in the ancient world. Nowhere else would you find slaves and masters, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, engaging in table fellowship, showing a real love for one another. Now, so in the first century, in the second century, in the third century, if you were making an argument about why the church should be put up with, you would point to the quality of the fellowship. Where else are all these people going to sit and gather but in the name of Jesus? 20 centuries later, what's the greatest argument against Jesus? Oh, come on. The hypocrites in the... Okay, I'm sorry, 11. Let me try that again. 2,000 years ago, the greatest argument for the truthfulness of Jesus were Christians. 20 centuries later, the greatest argument against the truth of Jesus are Christians. I mean, I talk to a lot of non-Christian folks. They rarely ask, it used to be they would ask really, really intellectual questions. How do you know that Jesus rose from the dead? How can you trust the Bible? And those are still asked. But you know the number one issue I find is? Churches full of hypocrites. Who would want to be like them? The argument is that following Jesus makes you a worse, more narrow-minded, hate-filled, bigoted kind of person. It's a moral argument, not primarily an intellectual one. So what's happened over the course of 2,000 years? One thing I suggest is that instead of being known for our love with one another, we're known for our 35,000 denominations. We're known instead for the ways in which we divide, reclassify, dissect, and recategorize each other because we live in an unpersecuted Christendom society. And so what you have, instead of a new humanity, what you have is just churches full of people who are just like them. And that's just the way we want it. That is not the new humanity. That is not what Jesus died for, nor is that a public witness at all to the world. The world does that. See, this is the, this is the place where whatever label you carry in here just doesn't matter. I have a little boy named Seth. Seth has Down syndrome. He's three and a half. We talk about him all the time. My wife corrupts him <laughs> by making him listen to Adele and... Jana Alira. Now, Jana Alira is wonderful. And if she ever hears this publicly, I'm a huge fan. But I, I want to raise my little boy on Pearl Jam. And that's just a different thing. We can talk about parenting philosophies later. But Jana Alira writes these wonderful, these wonderful just kids' worship songs. And our little Seth just loves them. And, and there's a DVD that has all the motions. And I didn't realize Seth had been watching this thing. So we're at VBS last June. Uh, at Mariners. And, uh, and Jana is doing a concert. She invites Seth on stage. Here's what happens. Now there are these motions. I had no idea Seth knew these. He's the little one right there in the front row. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> Come on. Now, he's like, okay, enough with the kindness because I got to do a motion right now. <laughs> okay, so he does this. We can turn it off. 
He just kills it. I love it. So we do this thing, right? And this was all spontaneous. I mean, it wasn't like he practiced. This was all spontaneous. And, and what began to happen? And I thought it was just happening to my wife and I. We're just sobbing. I mean, because the words of the song, We Are God's Masterpiece, I mean, it, just, it was like perfect. There were 2,000 kids in this big auditorium. And something, I am kid you not, something happened. Because Seth came off the stage with us and kids just flocked from all corners of the room just wanting to touch him and to bless him and to say hello to him and to cheer him on. Like we, we went under, there, there was this kind of mezzanine thing, we went under it and people were just calling down encouragement and blessing on our little dude. Now, it turned out to be one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. Why? Because out there, he's retarded. He's defective. He's abnormal. He's slow. He's handicapped. He's disabled. In here, in there, he was Seth. We got the faintest taste. The kids didn't know this, but they were embodying a new humanity where all of those labels and designations meant nothing in the community that had gathered. Imagine if a thousand adults began to treat each other and outsiders that way. Our little parking structure wouldn't be able to handle all of the cars for all of the people that would want to come to such a community. When every other way you can divide yourself up is irrelevant in this Jesus. See, our world is sick of our talking. Our world is looking for an embodied witness about does Jesus really make a difference? And the reason we do the hard work, guys, of putting up with each other, the reason we do the hard work of fighting so that there are 90-somethings and there are 20-somethings in the same room. The reason we do the hard work of making room for people of different theological or political persuasions. The, the reason we do the hard work of putting together believers that have been believers for 50 years and believers who aren't even believers yet. The reason we do the hard work for that is to show something off that can be found nowhere else. That this new humanity, see, this just stirs in me the desire for a church that just doesn't play the same games and use the same labels. Where we just all kind of go, yeah, we're all handicapped. Welcome to the club. Where we recognize Jesus doesn't speak English in heaven and that every tongue and tribe and nation will gather where we recognize there, God is the author of diversity. He made lots of different kinds of mushrooms. Why? I don't know. Evidently, he loves diversity. And so should his people. See, that is the kind of community the world is dying to see. And that is the opportunity we have here. So nothing wrong with hanging out with people just like you, but the call's bigger and wider and deeper than that. That we would begin to testify to the risen Jesus by the simple fact that every other label you carry in doesn't play. 
Not here. Not here. My little boy is a prophetic witness against the powers and principalities that define human life in terms of how effective it is. This is the one place where we together stand in the same way. We stand against the powers and principalities declaring that Jesus is Lord and that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. All that matters is I once was lost, but now have been found. Would you stand with me? Would you close your eyes just for a moment as we continue to worship? The question this raises in me is simply this. Where am I rebuilding the walls that Jesus has torn down? Where have I elevated labels and classifications and categories to the place where those things become more important than the simple designation of in Christ? Where, and personally, where do I let racism or bigotry or prejudice infect my heart so that I pre-categorize and pre-label people? Because all we're doing, brothers and sisters, is we're just passing along what we've received. We've, we've been given grace, so we give grace. We've been forgiven, so we forgive. And so, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, we gather this morning as a tribe of many colors, as a tribe of many viewpoints and philosophies, as a tribe of many backgrounds. And we ask God that we would be hungry for this new humanity you talk about. That we, we might do the hard work of reconciling and forgiving and blessing and encouraging, even those not like us. Lord Jesus, may this place be a community that stands against powers and principalities. And bless the crying babies, Lord Jesus, bless them. Lord, may your Holy Spirit come. Bring conviction where it's needed. Bring light where there's darkness. Bring truth where there are lies. But most of all, God, would you reconcile us so strongly to yourself we can't help but love one another. So we bless you, Jesus. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.